This episode of Contracting Conversations is brought to you by BSCAI Certifications. Stand out from the crowd and illustrate your dedication to the industry and professional development by earning one of four professional designations for supervisors, suppliers, managers, and executives. Learn more at bscai.org slash certification. Welcome to Contracting Conversations, a podcast series from the Building Service Contractors Association International. Through a series of interviews with entrepreneurs, business owners, and executives, this podcast aims to provide insights, trends, and tactics to support the growth and development of business owners serving the contract cleaning and facility maintenance industry. Welcome to Contracting Conversations, the official podcast of BSCAI. I'm your host, Lauren Lee Chorus. On this episode, I sit down with Sarah Ross, Speaker and Chief Vitality Officer of BrainAmped, where we discuss her approach to leadership, emotional intelligence, and her upcoming keynote address at this year's Contracting Success Conference. Support for Contracting Conversations comes from our premier partners, 3M, Diversity, Karcher, and Team Software. Learn more about our partners and their category-leading solutions for contractors at bscaiorg partners. So we'll just jump right into it. Sarah, can you tell me a little bit about your career path and how did you end up where you are now? Yes. I always want to start as a kid and people are like career path. And I only say that because I always say that my jobs have always been about trying to figure people out. And I, as a kid, really was one of those really annoying kids who didn't just ask a couple of questions, but ask like questions that you probably shouldn't ask. But I'd see people and I'd be interested. I'm like, huh, I wonder why they're doing that. So my poor parents were always trying to be like, excuse her. That's, you know, she doesn't need to ask that question. And yet they were always really great at challenging me to stay kind of curious about these things. So my career, I started when I came out of graduate school, I was actually doing a graduate project that I did not care for at all. That's all I needed. I just was bored by it. But it was part of a larger project where we were working on this water filtration system. And it was understanding why people in third world countries don't use water systems. And so even though I was working on this kind of technical element, the biochemistry of water and all of that good stuff, I got really interested in the psychological side of helping understand how to build trust with people so that they would use these facilities. And that truly just reinforced that that was the type of thing I needed to do. So I started my career in sales because I just believed if you could understand why people make decisions and understand how to approach different people, that was in a weird way, just valuable research. And so I was in that role and it was really interesting, but I kept finding myself heading towards training my team in different things. I was successful in it. So it gave me some great career opportunities and I'd find myself kind of coaching new hires. And then I would go to these courses and bring them back to the team. And I'm like, okay, you know, here's how we connect with people more effectively. Here's how we have difficult conversations. And I was blessed to work for an amazing leader who said to me, 
you need to stop swimming against the stream. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, you love teaching people and learning people and coaching. And like, that's what you need to be doing. And we don't have that here. And he's like, just for the record, do not tell anyone that I'm suggesting you do this because we want to keep you and I want to keep you. But I'm telling you, I think you're swimming against the stream. And it was, or against the current, and it was just one of those pivotal conversations. And so I had gone to an organization to take a course and it turned out that they were hiring. And I went into this organization that was teaching leadership and luckily they hired me. It was really cool. I helped build up their business development side of things. And then I took over bringing my research side. I took over all of their research and leadership innovation. I became certified as an executive coach I built certifications. We delivered these leadership programs. I always say my baby's out in the world, certified people around the world to deliver this work and had the opportunity to work directly with all different industries, people at all different levels to understand how to develop leaders, even when they are frontline and don't see themselves as leaders. And I loved it. It was amazing, amazing work. That's where I really cut my teeth in coaching, in emotional intelligence. I'd done a lot of neuroscience and language and behavioral profiling before that, but that was really powerful. But the last kind of interesting piece that happened was I kept finding I'd be working with these people and they'd say, I know exactly what I need to do, but I also feel too tired to do it. And there was, I just kept noticing that there were these exceptionally great leaders, but they split into two categories. There were some leaders who were great at what they did and felt energized by it. And there were some leaders who were so great at what they did and were absolutely exhausted. And I knew that mattered to me. And so I hired my replacement. I love my old firm, still work with them. They are fantastic. But I hired my replacement. And then I started my company, Brain Ant, which really looks at the brain science of leadership and performance and helping people understand what it means to lead in less exhausting ways, but live and thrive in ways that just fulfill them. And that was really important to me. So that's what has landed me here doing the work that I do now. Well, that's incredible. What a cool story. Thank you so much for sharing. And I think your journey is a perfect example of just going with your gut, pursuing your bliss and just getting the most out of it. And that is so fascinating, the neuroscience piece and the psychology, because that's something that interests me too, just like more of a hobbyist level. Like I love reading about, again, why are we doing certain things in our life? What is motivating us to say yes or no to experiences, to material things? And it's just so fascinating to me. And I, I have to piggyback on that because what you're saying, but there's also the side of why don't we do exactly the thing we know we should? It's not that we have no idea. And that's a part of what my keynote is going to address. It's that it's that it's in the moment and it just is fascinating. And I also think people then end up carrying a lot of regret and a lot of guilt because the moment wasn't managed the way they want it to, but it's not because they had no clue what they should have done. It's that they weren't able to tap into the resources that they had. And that is human. But it's also, it's also frustrating. And so helping people understand how human that is, but to then work with that brain science, I truly just think that is so empowering for people because it stops being like, I'm not good at this to like, oh, 
I just need to work with this brain that really is trying to help me out, but doesn't always care about what my future plans are. It cares about the moment. And we don't always respond in the moment the way that we are going to be happy about five hours later. Yeah, that's why the phrase hindsight 2020 exists, purely because of those, all of those decisions exactly. that we said, you know, it was the answer was no. And, you know, we look back and we're like, I wonder how things would have been different if I said yeah. yes. But, you know, you work with the information you have, but you're doing the and that helping people like overcome those mental barriers and have clarity in those yes. moments where it might make a huge difference in their career, their life, whatever it is. And that is where wisdom comes from, that there are people who are willing to then look at what they could have done differently, what did work, what they can learn from that. I mean, that is where wisdom comes from. And I do think that that is an important part of life. We're here learning. And so you don't gain wisdom when everything goes perfectly. Unfortunately, (laughs) I couldn't have said it better myself, truly. So Sarah, what's the most important lesson you've learned over the course of your career? And if you can't narrow it down to one, we have the time to go into it. So just, I think this might be one of the hardest questions because I really have learned so many things, but I will say this, I will definitely say this because I, I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned is to separate achievement and happiness or achievement and worthiness. And the reason I say that is, is I love what I do. I love to get things done and to solve problems. And, and that really does drive me. But at the same time, I think what then can happen is when we're, I have been so focused on doing something and it's like, once I achieve that, or if I do this well, then I can do this next thing is that it has, what I've found is those are exactly the times where I stopped learning. So my greatest lesson has been to learn, 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 and start to get exceptionally good at feedback, not giving it believe it or not, I believe that's important, but actually taking feedback and not over-personalizing and feeling crushed by it. I am a ruminator. I don't need anyone's feedback to make me do that just for the record, but to truly, I mean, to, instead of just beating myself up and, or getting super defensive over it. And I have done both of those. That's why I say this biggest learning and just to be clear, complete work in progress on this, but truly, I think the most freeing and catalyzing thing that has helped me in my career is really pulling every ounce of feedback I can, even when I don't like who delivered it, I don't agree with it. And I don't like how they said it. I think sometimes that's some of the most important feedback. And I've also learned, I think the other piece is, is to listen to feedback doesn't mean that all feedback deserves equal weight. And I have started to learn that feedback that is geared to be helpful is worth listening to. Feedback that has been geared to make me feel less and tear me down is not the feedback that deserves all of the mental real estate that I have available. Absolutely. You got to filter a little bit and in order to keep moving forward. And I mean, just what you said about achievement doesn't necessarily equate to happiness. I mean, it definitely resonates with me as a person, a professional, and I know it will with the people that you talk to at contracting success, but I think 
there's such a, an important point in there when you're not learning anymore and you're not taking feedback and you're not growing, that means you're stagnating and there is nothing more boring or troubling than being stagnant. I mean, that is just, I think even more stressful than realizing you have more to do and more to learn. That's my personal opinion, but. And, and it's so interesting because I see, I work with so many people. I'm in the midst of writing a book right now and researching for it where people will often say, you know, I'm so stressed out, but, but what they are is actually stressed by the constant perpetual cycle of the same frustrations. So yet I'm not diminishing the stress that they're experiencing, but they're also bored. There's also an element where they have stopped challenging themselves and or engaging in things that they feel uncomfortable around or have something to learn from. And that can actually really disguise itself as exhaustion when it is apathy. It's this sense of like just not feeling a drive to get better and to try to do different things. And so I think that that learning mindset is so valuable and that's in our work, but that doesn't have to be in our work. That can be in other areas, which I also think, which is so powerful about associations, because I think these are another opportunity to learn skills and do things. And people feel differently when they leave this environment where they have been exposed to different strategies and perspectives. Our brain, it wants safety. It wants ease, but it fundamentally needs challenge and learning. And so we, knowing that, are constantly needing to to balance and battle that. What might feel easy isn't actually what makes us feel fulfilled most often. Absolutely. I completely agree. And kind of transitioning to my next question a little bit, and I know this might be equally as difficult to answer, but are there pieces of advice that have just stuck with you over the course of your career, you know, as you've been receiving feedback and learning and sort of filtering, you know, things that are actually constructive and are going to help you move forward? Can you talk about those at all? For sure. I have two. I can't pick one because there are two different ones. One's a straight out quote that I'm going to butcher. And it may not even be a real quote, just putting it out there. Like it might not actually be a quote. I should look this up to know officially, but I think I've been really lucky to work for some really great people. And I will always say I've yet to ever work for a perfect leader, but I think there are people I feel like I have had the opportunity to work with people who have invested in me. And one of the things when I was looking to start my, oh, there's so many times, but when I was really, I had started my new company and I was hesitant about some things and what to kind of jump into. And I had somebody give me a piece of advice. They said, it's impossible to get to second base with your foot on first. You just have got to go into the unknown. You have to trust yourself. You have to pull on resources, but you cannot move forward with one foot holding you back. And that, I mean, we started this and you said, you know, following your intuition. And I think there's that balance of like, I really think things through. Like I am one of those things. I probably always stay, I'll keep my foot on first, like a little bit longer than probably most people believe I should. But like if that pitcher throws that pitch, somebody would be like, not now. And I'm like, no, this is now. Like, this is the time for me. And I will just go. And again, this is where I think these all come back together because this is where when you are in a place that 
whether I am successful or not doesn't determine my happiness or my worth or my value. The learning I get from it does. Then the freedom to run, to take, you know, steal second base, to run past third and go home, like those become possible because I'm no longer held back by, well, what if it doesn't go right? Now, strategically, don't get me wrong. I rarely just am like, this seems like a good day and spontaneously do it. Although the decision looks that way sometimes, but it's been the work before, but truly you must be willing to be uncomfortable and go into the unknown to move forward. So I'd say number one, and that was as an individual person. The second piece is a woman I worked with, an organization I went into, and she told me a story that has fundamentally changed my leadership mindset. And this was really important in my last organization, which I led a much larger team, but now it's quite interesting that my team is smaller, but how important this is. And she told me this story where... She heard it from someone, but she's like, as a leader, you have to remember that every day when people, when we were in offices, but every time when people go home, walk out of their home office, get off a conference call, one of the primary conversations they will have in that evening is about you. As a leader, your people talk about you. You influence their life every time you send them a message at night. You influence them the way you have a conversation in the day. You are not responsible for how people feel, but you have to remember that your actions and how you lead them has a ripple effect. And it's not even just on them. It's in how they engage. And you can't control that. But to be aware of the responsibility in that It fundamentally slowed me down on more times than I can count to just appreciate that they are a human being. And if I am the person who can make and break, fire them, do like I have that influence, it's important to recognize that as a responsibility and to think about that's a way to kind of think about the way that we are showing up with people. What type of conversations are they having in the evening? Do they leave work where they feel built up, even if they've had some hard feedback or where they feel respected to have heard hard feedback without a lot of the nice stuff? Like, it was like, here is what is not cool that you are doing. Or are they walking away and going home and feeling torn down? And I can be... I can be very direct and I like people to be direct with me. And that really helped me recognize that what I like may not be the same thing that everybody else likes, how I like feedback. I need to actually learn what's going to make them end their day where they feel full versus empty. And those two pieces, one individually for me, but to, to start to think of myself as a leader and the impact and responsibility I have that has never left me like that has never. And it's carried through to as a speaker, right? Like, so I don't get to control what people do after, but it fundamentally changes the way I stand on a stage. And I think about how do I want people to feel when they leave here? If they talk about this, how do I want them to hopefully talk about this with their spouses, their partners, their kids at home, their employees, like that just changes the way it's changed the way I do everything, to be honest. Absolutely. And it's crazy. And I think sometimes we forget that often, especially those that, you know, working 40 to 80 hours a week, the people who we work with or under, 
those are the people that we're spending most of our lives with. And those people have an insane impact on who we are as people, even more so than family, I think, after a certain time. So absolutely couldn't agree more. So Sarah, can you share a time where you experienced a challenge and explain how you overcame it. Again, I feel like you're like my, my challenge today. Like I can just go from today if you want. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I know. It's kind of unfair. I know it's all these singular instances and I'm so sorry. So no, again, no, it's open it's, forum. <laughs> it's so powerful to think about, but, but I would say, I think it piggybacks off of what I just said. I had this person working for me who so I have messed up so much. Like there's just so many times I've kind of messed something up and had to learn from it. But this one I think was important for me to recognize because I had somebody who was w- wonderful who worked for me. One, let me rephrase that. They were terrible at their job. <laughs> so let me just, they were not good at what they did. They were wonderful. So sweet so kind. I really, really liked them. I know they really liked me. They were just bad at what they did. And I really worked hard to help them probably to a degree that it pulled from some of my other responsibilities. So, so in hindsight, 2020, as we said before, that was an important learning with that being said, there were probably two times that I had conversations that I had most of the conversation, but not the entire conversation. And I can say it was because this person was so sweet and I didn't want to hurt their feelings. And I didn't want to, you know, smother their goal of trying to learn and and motivation and, and this kind of engagement. But as I have reflected on it, I think at the end of the day, and I hate admitting this, I didn't want that person to not like me. I, I, that I hate this it, but I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to hurt their feelings, but I didn't want to be the, the mean manager of them. And I did not have full conversations with them to let them understand how serious the situation was. And I had to fire them. And when I fired them, I do have a belief that if somebody's getting fired, unless it's like something crazy that happened that day. But I, I really do believe that somebody getting fired should not be super surprised they are getting fired, laid off, different decisions that way, COVID, whole different story. But if you were getting fired, it's because you haven't done a good, you have not done a good job. That sh- you shouldn't hear that the moment you're getting fired. And I rocked this person. I rocked them. They really thought they were still in the place where they were learning and they had chances. and. It, I know, I know that it really, it severed trust and that matters to me because I think it then had an impact in that person going into their next role and their confidence and trusting good relationships. And I feel like that was one of those career moments that, that, as I said, get really good at feedback. But if somebody said you can go back, that's one of those ones that I would go back, not to the moment that I was letting that person go to the conversations before to have recognized at the end of the day, they're the person who's going to lose their job. I'm so worried about how I feel and why I don't like having this conversation. And, oh, this is going to make me uncomfortable. I have all the control. I still have the job. And so that really helped me recognize that when I am avoiding a conversation, 
who is it in most disservice of? Is it because I'm uncomfortable or is it keeping information from somebody that they need to learn to grow and to understand where they stand? Because as a leader, if leadership was easy, we'd have tons of A, people who want to be leaders and B, phenomenal leaders. But leadership is really, really hard to do. But I keep going back to it is also there is also responsibility in that. And so for me, it was one of those big pieces of how committed am I to helping this person to learn and grow? How committed to building a trusting relationship am I? And if I don't have this conversation, who is it most into service of? And that might be the team. Like that was the other piece. Like I said, it was, I had this amazing team, but I was pulling time from this amazing team because I think that I just didn't want to have to fire this person. And so I have never let that happen again. I've never let that happen again, which is why getting good at feedback has been really hard. And then getting even better, more committed. I wouldn't say I do it perfectly, but more committed to having those conversations has been a huge learning for me. So difficult to find or rather strike a balance between the personal side of things and empathy. And then just, and it's, again, the conversation is so impossible anyway, because we're human. And as soon as we are put in that type of situation, our brains are immediately going down a rabbit hole before you even say anything. They're like, well, well, I'm useless. And that was terrible. And I guess my career's over. Like that's like the first, like five or six thoughts that hit your brain. And there's nothing you can do about it, except just kind of power through and understand that these are the types of things that make people better eventually and make businesses better. So, yes. And people, people deserve that. People deserve to understand how to learn and grow and do their job better. They really do. Now, does that mean everybody wants to hear it and everybody's going to No, but they deserve to have, if they decide not to use that information, that is not what you are responsible for. They have to make the decision to take it, to learn from it, to grow from it. But your, I do believe your responsibility is to offer it and to make sure that they make that choice. And in your opinion, what are two to three extremely important qualities that a leader should have? To get really good at being imperfect. I really think that's important. You're going to notice themes through everything, which wasn't planned, but as we're talking, because I think these things are all connected. I think sometimes leaders are afraid to make decisions, to do things, to grow and try things that they haven't done before. Keep one foot on first for the safety, but because they don't have all the information yet, or they, they don't want to look stupid. They don't want to risk their business, but there is this balance of imperfection that I think has to be there. And so we avoid conversations when it's like, I don't know the right thing to say, so I'm not going to have any conversation, but, but people, people aren't looking for perfect people. They aren't, they're, they're looking for real people who are, who are genuinely, sincerely trying. And you can't keep trying and making the same mistake, but that goes to the second piece, I think. So great leaders have to get better at being 
comfortable with uncertainty, with not having all of the information, with being imperfect on how things have to happen sometimes, because there is truth to sometimes done is better than perfect. And we just need to move the needle to see what worked and then to make the adjustments. But I see a lot of people get caught in that analysis paralysis and that, and that hesitation and thoughtfulness and strategy and planning fundamentally matter. But I often say analysis without action breeds anxiety. We have to have a bias for action. It's so fundamental. And, and I'll say the last thing that I've just genuinely seen in researching what makes exceptional leaders that are energized and full of of what I call vitality, like this, this kind of aliveness factor really comes down to maintaining a mindset of curiosity. Like we really have a curiosity deficit right now. It is a lot of answers, but far fewer questions. And I think that when you're willing, I used to say leaders who ask questions, but I take it back. I take that back because I think when there's people who ask questions, but they've already decided what they're going to listen to, they've already made a decision, they're paying lip service. But I think that when you keep a mindset of curiosity, you can't be curious and not ask questions. And you can't be curious and not listen to the answers for what those questions are going to be. And if you genuinely have that open mindset, I think that helps hear information that will help you make the best decisions. I think fundamentally right now, this is just a time of paradoxes. So if there are leaders who can hold two opposites at the same time and know that at any given moment, both of those might be true, they both might have validity and truth and be open to how people are experiencing them. Like I just cannot express how much stress and anxiety and frustration that is going to save people. But curiosity requires being comfortable with uncertainty and being uncertain means being okay with not having all the information and things being imperfect. And sometimes those are some of the qualities that the opposites of those have what made people successful. So I guess the last piece is be willing to let go of the things that are no longer serving you and recognize when you are leading with ego ship versus doing the hard work of leadership. I think what everything you're saying, it's kind of a perfect segue and and you covered it a lot already, but the specific challenges as people begin to ascend to positions of leadership and Also, I feel like there's this weird self-imposed pressure, especially on younger generations and maybe even on older generations where, like you were saying, they feel like they just need to know everything right away. And I think, but then that's, that's exactly where you get into trouble is that by assuming, by just trying to scrape by, you know, not bother anybody with questions. And they, again, like you said, you would be saving people such a big headache later if you just ask the smaller question now instead of having yes. to proactively explain why you didn't ask the question and just acted on whatever you thought was what was supposed to happen. It's so true. And if you think about it, I think for even for like I always think about the younger generation, you spend so much time in school trying to have the right answer. 
So now to come out and be like, oh, be curious about all the things like there, you mean there isn't a right answer. I think that that is a really hard transition. And it's interesting, like even how that moves through. But to your point, I think one thing is really interesting because there's, there's such cool data on this around trust. And for those who might listen to this that are like, okay, well, I'm not the one, you know, making the big decision. Well, we sometimes believe that you said it back, like trying to scrape through, figure it out on your own. And if you can just prove, prove that you can do it, well, then you're going to gain that respect and then you're going to be trusted. But in fact, what the research shows is that trust is built through questions. Trust is built when people say, I know you told me this, but I want to make sure I'm clear, or I'm not sure how to get this done, or we want to see people taking initiative, but when you were willing to say, I don't know, and here's what I think you said, but I want to double check on that, that builds trust. Like I can say as building a company now, oh, I so appreciate when someone's like, I just want to double check that this is what you meant, because it may have been a day where I was distracted. And to know that I have some people on my team right now that will just be totally okay with saying, I'm not sure I know how to do this. Then it's like, okay, cool. But it also helps reset expectations. Like it, it builds trust. It, it creates conversation. And so don't get me wrong. I think that there's a balance of taking initiative and a bias for action and trying things and learning through those things, which is why it's important to be open to feedback. But it's also that piece of if you say you need help and you don't know something, somebody is going to trust you to give you those bigger opportunities because they also know that you'll come to them when you need help. So that, so that relieves pressure on managers. It's, it's when it's like, I think that person's okay, but I don't know, especially if you're trying not to micromanage that that all gets a lot harder. So it, it, I mean, whether you are the person asking the questions from a place of authority, or you are the person being willing to ask the questions who are trying to figure it out both ways, be curious, be open and, and ask that question. So shifting gears just a little bit. So I want to talk about emotional intelligence. You brought it up toward the beginning of the episode, but now I really want to get into the nitty gritty of it. So what would you say is the importance of emotional intelligence and just the idea of resilience in the workplace? You've asked me the hardest, but I, like, I, I just, put, I'm like, okay, let's get the jacket <laughs> off. I'm sweating here. There's these massive questions. Like, why is this important? I'm like, distill it down into four sentences, but it is, it's a really, I mean, and I think anyone in this industry might answer it a little bit differently. I will say this, why is resilience important? Because life is going to keep knocking us down. And why is resilient important? Because if you're going to take your foot off first base, you're going to mess up sometimes running to second. Why is resilient important? Because stress levels are at record levels right now. And, and stress isn't going anywhere. I'll even say it's, it's the stress that creates the most meaningful things in our lives. And so Resilience, I think, is so powerful, which is a part of emotional intelligence, but I'm going to hit that second. Resilience is so important. My book, it's called Dear Work. Something has to change. But part of it is to live a fully lived life. You need to be able to get knocked down. You need to be able to get back up. You need to be able to find the learning and meaning in difficult 
situations and you've got to be willing to step into stressful situations that might be easier to avoid the hard conversations, trying something out in the digital world, social media. I have resisted social media at all levels. And only because I do the research and I work with people and I was like, oh, it doesn't matter. And I had somebody say to me, they just said something that hit me and they were like, but you have this information that you're sharing. It's a disservice not to share it. And it was such a reframe for me. And I was like, oh my God. Okay. I would like it was, but there's that, that reframe. And so even if it doesn't make you feel comfortable, you've still got to be willing to do these things. So I think resilience is, is so critical for a fully lived life. And I think emotional intelligence is a key piece of that because a fully lived life is also a life that involves emotions and human beings are complex and we are hard and relationships are really challenging at times. But if you can start to recognize that your emotions and your brain and your body is not out to get you, it's out to serve you. And if you can understand and recognize those emotions, understand them as pieces of information that is trying to help us in life and be willing to get a bit messy, to, to sit in the uncomfort of that, but to work through that, to recognize that these emotions kick in. And, and though you might want to react one way, being able to manage those little micro moments between life and response. I mean, that is incredibly powerful to then having those moments where even if they weren't perfect, you know, that you did the best of your ability. And then I think most fundamentally our world is, 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 we are being tested. We have very different perspectives in so many things right now. And, and it's hard. And I think that it is challenging people to really, it's challenging relationships. And at the end of the day, you can look at any empirical information on psychological well-being, and the number one thing is relationships and connection. The last 18, 19 months has shown us how important those are. So I think even as a, the self-awareness and growth for yourself is important, recognizing and understanding emotions and really understanding what they are is important, but being able to connect with the emotions of other people, it is going to continue to be not only a defining work skill, but a defining life skill, a relationship skill. And we just, that, you know, empathy, I keep saying it's the MVP of 2020, 2021. Like it's, it's, it's not losing its meddling place anytime soon it, but it is a skill. And in order for those skills to be learned and those behaviors to be demonstrated, beliefs need to shift. And I actually believe that's the foundation of emotional intelligence, not just doing emotionally intelligent things, but believing, believing empathy and developing empathy before you actually try to demonstrate empathy. I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I oh, think I definitely did. it's that it's that how we can do what we need to do in a complex world where sometimes the best answers come from 15 different perspectives that are going to be, that are going to be different. And that just, we have to be willing to deal with the hard stuff right now. But when we do all the great stuff does come from that. And I just, you know, I don't want to be a total optimist, but 
I keep saying, I, I think our life is here to keep learning and growing. So we, this hard stuff is what you go through to get to the good stuff. It just, you don't get your cake and you don't get to eat it too. Not all the time, once in a while, but not all the time. Right. Exactly. I had read this crazy New York times article. I forget when it came out, maybe last summer. It's, it's hard to measure time anymore, to be honest. I I feel like we're just in a a weird vacuum, but, um, and they were talking about, um, the author was talking about those fringe relationships that you don't pay that much attention. I read, I I don't know if it's the same one, but this is with me. This is stayed with me wild. Cause like, you know, like especially in adulthood. I mean, how hard is it to maintain meaningful relationships, friendships, whatever it is. But as soon as all of those, like just a passing hello, those types of things, those people kind of disappeared. It was just this, this crippling loneliness, this sense of like, you could feel the absence of, of not having those types of interactions for 18 months. It was crazy. Such it's, an interesting article. So interesting. It, it stayed, it has stayed with me. Um, because again, that's where I sometimes get afraid of too much automation and everything. Cause it's like, okay, I don't even have to go in the grocery store. I can just get it. I know. Like, <laughs> I know there are val- like, please don't get me wrong again, context. And this is paradoxes, right? Two things, truth mm-hmm. at any given time. So yes, some, I mean, for so many people being able to just drive up and get something and go matters. But I think for some of us, we don't appreciate how smiling at that person who always seems to grocery shop at the same time, but you're pretty yeah. sure they're not stalking you, you know, or right. here that has that loud laugh that is like a little too loud, but you hear and you smile and you try to get into their line. Yeah. I, I had this moment where I was walking uh, about a a year and a bit after um, kind of March of 2020. So it would have been like April, May of this year. And I was walking and all of a sudden I hear my name. So I go, Sarah, and I turn around and it's a woman that used to, I do like boxing and combat. um, And she was one of the instructors. And I was, it was like, it just, because I see this woman every single yeah. week. And though we weren't friends, we just, it's like, well, I was going to, her name was Sarah too. Well, not only was I just elated to see her and it took all my effort. I actually ran over to give her a big hug and I was like, all <laughs> oh, right, there's this thing called a pandemic happening. So no joke. She has a baby, like an actual baby, not just pregnant. She's got like a baby. And then yeah. she's like, I, I found out just before you didn't know. And of course, my response to her is the most awkward. I just, I was out of touch with these relationships, these oh, yeah. friends relationships. And I was like, well, you've been productive. Who <laughs> says that? Like, I was absolutely mortified. <laughs> I've thought about it a thousand times since, but she just laughed. I laughed. And it, but it was one of those where A, it just gave me energy, but I'd read that article and then had this experience And it's actually just, it made me miss those things. And that's the being out in life again. And and I think that comes again, that's the the value of a curiosity mindset and being willing to get uncomfortable, even if you are comfortable in what you're doing and, and have new experiences, like all of these things all add on. And, and that's, you know, they show there's research on emotional intelligence and resilience that, that. A diversity of emotion actually builds resilience. 
It's not about the people who just are positive and are like have a can-do attitude or emotionally intelligent people who, who are able to see the opportunities and things and believe everybody can change. And it's those, it's also having those feelings of feeling sad and being embarrassed about a stupid thing that you said to somebody and feeling uncomfortable and feeling happy and feeling calm. And it's the diversity of emotions that actually increases our, our resilience. And I think that's like life is meant to be lived. And and that I think is really powerful for people to appreciate. Absolutely. So how do you prepare for a speaking engagement and, you know, a key keynote address now that we're talking about contracting success? So there's, I mean, part of it is outside of whatever client I'm speaking to. I mean, the, I am genuinely always researching. I'm always working on my, my kind of content and, and, and what's relevant to people and tools and what's new and what I'm learning as well as, as a po- and along with what are, what's happening in, in the world. Um, obviously so much of what I talk about, there's elements of the core that are the same, but what I talked about in you know January of 2020 and what I'm going to talk about in November of 2021, there are fundamental different shifts on how that gets approached. So, so I always say I, there is all that work that happens outside that I'm doing, but when it comes to getting the opportunity, because I am so blessed to be able to work with so many different industries, which truly is the greatest honor for two reasons. It's helped me build a tremendous amount of empathy because it just, I've learned things about industries I would never have known. But number two, it also shows me how human we all are and that, that there are specifics to, to certain industries for sure. But the common element of human beings dealing with human beings that that is human. And there, there are just consistent things that happen, which is interesting. So for me, as, as I'm preparing, it's to then meet with clients, to meet with a potential audience member, to, to, to research the industry, but to actually have conversations about what people are looking for. What are the challenges that they have been experiencing? What do they wish was different? What are they waiting to change? But if I can help show them that wishing and waiting and wanting leaves us feeling pretty helpless and stuck, but, but recognizing what that is so I can meet them where they are, then, then having those, those tools becomes really important and listening for stories. I think the other thing is that the beauty in working with different associations and working with different industries is there's podcasts and there's blogs and there's different things. And so being able to, to kind of do some of that work to see what people are are talking about um, all helps me pull on, on the, the stories and the framing that I'm going to share. So, and then there's just the actual prep, like actually prepping to do things and, and, I'm weird. I have my weird little rituals that I do, but, but I, you know, I, part of it is I just had somebody say to me, cause I was, I had done so many things virtual for so long. And then over the last month for myself doing things live and my first live event, I got up and my mouth was so dry. And I was like, I am so nervous for this. But somebody said to me, they're like, oh, it must be great to get to the place where you're not nervous. And I genuinely laughed at them. I did. And I didn't even mean to. I was like, oh, let me be incredibly clear. 
whether I should admit this or not, every morning that I have a talk, a keynote that I'm giving, there's this moment that happens where I'm like, why do I do this? This is a really hard job. Like who chooses to stand in front of people? I wonder if, is there any bad weather coming? That'd be great. Like, will somebody pull the fire? Like I literally go through this where I'm like, why would I do this? And then And then I go back to that conversation, that piece of that kind of what, what is the conversation I want people to be having when they leave my, the time I get to have with them. And when I start thinking about that and why I care about what I talk about, then I'm like, okay, I am nervous. And, and I'm also really excited. And this is my great stress system and body getting me ready to do the stuff that I absolutely love to meet the challenge that is in front of me the best way I possibly can. And even if I forget 10 things, because I never got off a stage and have said every single thing I wished I had, nor does it ever come out of my mouth perfectly, but I will never, ever be at a loss for learning. And as soon as that becomes my mindset, then it's like, let's get nervous and and do what I'm supposed to do. But yeah, part of the preparation is also going through, I should change my career. This is too hard of a career. <laughs> That's hilarious. I love that so much. I, I, that resonates on a cellular level. <laughs> Why am I just a constant reminders? Um, <laughs> my gosh. Um, so Sarah, my last couple of questions for you, they kind of go hand in hand. So okay. What are some things you love most about giving a keynote address at an event like Contract and Success? And why should attendees be stoked for your address at the event? I do not need to work out after this. This has been the hardest conversation. The best conversation, the hardest question. Okay, let's hit this. Well, I will say, um, I think I think the first question was, why do... What was the, the first question, the second question is why should people attend? The first question was what again? Uh, what are some things you love about giving addresses? Like this? Um, what I love is genuinely being, and you said you are a bit of a, a brain science nerd as well. I love helping people recognize that when they don't do the things they know they should, when they react in a way that they wish they hadn't, when they hesitate to say the things that they know that they should have, that those are not character defects, that those are moments where our brain has probably gotten ahead of us. And when I can help people recognize that, that the better they actually work with how their brain is designed to work in those moments, that they can empower themselves with those tools. And that the more that they actually practice them, the better that they become that they're not these inherent things that you were born with or not born with. That's what I love doing because I think that the hardest two emotions for people, the hardest three emotions are feeling hopeless, helpless, and shame. I think those three emotions for human beings are incredibly hard and we feel regret. We feel shame. We feel embarrassment. We might feel obligation and guilt when we don't think that we have done things well enough. And when we feel like there is just, we're overwhelmed and we don't have the tools and we feel stuck. Like that genuinely hurts my heart for people because it's, it's a real experience and, and helping people move out of that matters, matters to me. 
so that they show up in a way that they are most proud of, that they engage with people in a way that those people feel cared for and loved. And again, I go back to, I, I just see so many people waiting and wanting and wishing their days away until the weekend, until this thing is done, until they can be happy, until this, this financial, you know, quota is met until they're this age, until they retire. And, and we wish life away. And so giving people tools to, to kind of fully live in this moment in the best way possible to build experience, to build expertise, to build relationships, to build wisdom. I I just think that that is a powerful thing for people. And so doing that by sharing science in a relatable way that just empowers people that they can then go and teach people, which nothing makes me happier than when somebody says, I went and taught this. I just used this strategy. Um, Or my final one is when people say, was that story about me? Did somebody say that? And I was like, no, that story is a universal human story. And what I want you to realize is you think it's about you because you think you're the only one that experiences that. And the reality is it resonates because it's a human conditioned experience. And the more we feel part of a, a, we feel part of things, the less alone we feel, the less powerless we feel, the less helpless we feel, and the more we're willing to ask for help and reach out and connect. And, and at the heart, we know that that is, that is what fulfills people. So getting the opportunity to get up there and do that, to share relevant science, relatable stories, and strategies that they can put into place the minute they stand up and leave their matters and making them feel like they can actually do it is my ultimate goal that I hope if they are standing around talking to their family, that's the conversation that they are having. Amazing. Well, Sarah, that is all I have for you, believe it or not. No more hard (laughs) questions today, but I, I so appreciate you taking the time to be part of the podcast. This was such an enlightening conversation. I know people are going to get such joy listening to it. And I know that they're looking forward to your keynote address at Contracting Success. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. I am looking forward to it too. And great conversation with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Contracting Conversations from BSCAI. If you liked what you heard and want to find out more or listen to previous episodes, head over to bscai.org slash podcast. There, you can also subscribe to our newsletter so you never miss industry news, updates, and great tips. Subscribe to Contracting Conversations on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And learn more about our community on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube.